I want to start with uh, Psalm 17. I, it was a prayer of David when he was facing the kind of wickedness and, and enemies that you just prayed of, that we're facing in our society today. Uh, starting in verse 8 of Psalm 17, he asked the Lord, keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who despoil me, my deadly enemies who surround me, who have closed their unfeeling heart. With their mouth they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They set their eyes to cast us down to ground. He is like a lion that is eager to tear and as a, a young lion hiding, lurking in hiding places. Arise, O Lord, confront him. Bring him low, deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword. From men with your hand, O Lord. From men of the world whose portion is in this life and whose belly you fill with your treasure. We are, they are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. And I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. You know, I imagine there are many people in Ukraine today that are praying similar prayers, feeling surrounded and overwhelmed, uh, especially those in Severodonetsk, where the Russian artillery is continuing to pound and pound and pound away, um, just as they did down in uh, Mariupol, uh, further south, where tens of thousands of people are believed to have, to have died you know, early in, in this war, the American diplomats offered the Ukrainian president a chance to evacuate, and many of you know his response. He said, I need ammunition, not a ride. And in a video I saw online very early in, in, in the war, there's this old Ukrainian lady who approached a soldier on the street of her hometown, a Russian soldier with a hand of sunflower seeds, and said, here, put these in your pocket so that when you die, flowers will grow. That's what happens to our hearts. When this kind of conflict arises around us, there's bitterness and hatred on both sides. Welsh poet, uh, and he was also an Anglican priest, George Herbert, once said, skill and confidence are an unconquered army. Now, I, I agree. But as believers, we never really know how confident we are, how strong our army is until we face a test as the people of Ukraine are facing a test. Today, I want to go to the Bible and look at the story of one great king who found himself in a situation very much like the Ukrainians are facing today, and we'll look at the confidence that made him great. And I'll assert that it's the same confidence that you and I have available to us today in our relationship with the Lord. Now, the story is told in 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19, and I'm not going to read the whole thing today, but you will find I am reading an awful lot of the text. It's a great story, and sometimes my paraphrases don't do it justice. It's the story of Hezekiah's rebellion against the Assyrians, which occurred 700 years before the birth of Christ. The story is such an important part of Scripture that it's repeated. It's also written down in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, and it's also recorded a bit by the prophet Isaiah, who plays a key part in the story himself. 
So the story starts in the fourth year of Hezekiah's reign. He was a young man, and he was just getting used to being the king. When he sees to the north of him what the Assyrians are doing to the northern kingdom, Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, had taken control of most of the Middle East by then. In fact, the Assyrians at that point controlled almost everything known north of Egypt. Um, The Assyrian Empire covered all of modern-day Iraq and Syria and Jordan and parts of Iran. And, of course, that included that strip along the Mediterranean coast that encompasses the Holy Lands. The Assyrians were a powerful people from what is now northwest Iraq, and they were bent on world domination at the time. All that stood between the two great superpowers of the day, Assyria to the north and Egypt to the south, were the little nations of Israel and Judah, the two nations that God's people had split into uh, over uh, family rivalries, uh, to say the least. And so, at 25 years old, Hezekiah is looking north and seeing what is happening to the northern kingdom. You know, I can't help but see the parallel of the Holy Lands sitting between these two major warring superpowers to the north and south, and the Ukraine sitting between the world superpower of Russia and the NATO alliance to the west. The only obstacle to the superpower clash was God's people at that time. Now, in Hezekiah's time, as I mentioned, uh, God's people were split to the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. So beginning in the fourth year of his reign, Hezekiah was able to watch northward for three years as Shalmaneser and all his armies captured all of Israel and laid siege to Samaria and totally devastated the area. At the end of the siege, Israel was carried away into captivity, leaving Judah alone in the high country, of God's promised land. Now, how could this happen? Well, to God's people, Scripture tells us they had it coming. 2 Kings 19.12 explains that they were exiled because they did not obey the God of their fathers. Hezekiah was watching and learning that lesson. And so seven years after the northern kingdom fell, in the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign, It was his turn to face the Assyrians. He was then 39 years old, and his country had not yet seen war except from a distance, and then it came. Like a plague of locusts coming down from the north, the Assyrian invaders, led by a new king named Sennacherib, swept down upon the land, quickly captured all the fortified cities of Judah except one, and that was Jerusalem. A caveat, the city of Lachish, or Lachish, depending on which Bible translator you look at, um, it was under siege, but not fully captured at the time the story starts. Now, before the Assyrians got to uh, his area, Hezekiah did some smart things. He immediately began to take what defensive measures he knew he could take. His forces took control of the country's most valuable resource. What would you imagine the most valuable resource in in Israel would be? Or in water? Yes. Not oil as it is today, and and we'd, we'd go after the oil fields. Hezekiah sent his men out to dam up the streams, to cover up the wells, to make sure the invading armies had nothing to drink. 
And then they went and they had time, because they saw the war happening to the north of them, to build, rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And Hezekiah issued what shields and spears he had to his people, and appointed officers over his people, and he began to encourage them spiritually. This part comes out of the Second Chronicles version of this story, Second Chronicles chapter 32. He says to them, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria or because of all the horde that's with him. For the one with us is greater than the one with him. With him is only an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and fight our battles. And the people relied on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. It's quite interesting that, uh, well, what he just said about the Lord fighting their battles. It hadn't happened yet, but it was about to. So now, as the people are prepared and the Assyrian hordes have come down, diplomacy begins. First, Hezekiah tries a typical human diplomatic technique. He tried to buy his way out of the war. He issued an apology to Assyria for not paying them the tribute that they'd wanted. And then he offered some appeasement. In 2 Kings 18, starting in verse 14, it says, Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose upon me, I will bear. So the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Hezekiah gave him all the silver which was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. And at that time, Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord, from the doorposts which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Now, that's quite the sacrifice. That's quite the payoff. We're saying, okay, well, we can, we can worship without all the gilded uh, doors and stuff, and you want gold, well, maybe this will buy off the enemy. But just as the European nations found out in World War II, appeasement doesn't often work. You cannot buy off the intentions of evil. Once you pay the price, evil only gets stronger, and evil only gets hungrier. And that's what we see here in the very next verse, 2 Kings 18, verse 17. We find the Assyrians are now standing right outside the walls of Jerusalem. And Sennacherib is about to show what his diplomacy looks like. It looks like uh, what the Americans got accused of in the Boxer Rebellion, gunboat diplomacy. You bring all the power to bear and say, I want it my way. Let's look at the negotiating team he, he brought. Uh, in verse 17, we're told the king of Assyria sent Tartan. That name means military commander. So this person was the equivalent of his secretary of defense or top man at the Pentagon. And uh, it says they sent a guy named Rabsaris, which is, means chief eunuch or court official. So he would be like the secretary of state. And then a guy named Rabshaka, who ended up doing most of the speaking when they were at the wall, and he was the chief cupbearer to the king, which would have been chief of staff, would be a quite similar approximation. So he sent them from Lachish, so he sent them to King Hezekiah with a large army to Jerusalem to negotiate. So they went up and came to Jerusalem, and when they went up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway of the Fuller's Field. So you get the picture. 
three of the most powerful officials of the most powerful nation in the world at the time, backed by a huge contingent of the most powerful army in the world, are standing outside the wall of this little city of Jerusalem, ready to negotiate, (laughs) or so it seems. So Hezekiah is not to be outdone. He sends his own negotiating team. Uh, Verse 18 says he sent uh, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. Now, that's almost comical. Against the most powerful military negotiating team in the world, Hezekiah is sent out as personal business manager, a secretary, and the son of a historian. Well, let's see how well they do. The undermining conversation begins. The psychological operations, you might say, begin in verse 19. Then Rabshakeh, remember he's the chief spokesman for the Assyrians. Rabshakeh says to him, say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what is this confidence you have? Now hold on to that question. What is this confidence of yours? Because that's what we're going to bounce back to a little bit later. Rabshak is still speaking. He said, you say, but they're only empty words. I have counsel and strength for war. Now, on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Now, behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, which if a man leans on it, it'll go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to those who rely on him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, Is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? I have to freeze there. That's a typical tactic. He's using a half-truth. We'll find out later. Hezekiah was a guy who removed all the worship spots in the high places, but they weren't exactly places to worship the one true God. We'll continue with Rabshakeh's little insults. Now, therefore, come make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses, if you're able on your part to set riders on them. How can you repulse even one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord's approval against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go against this land and destroy it. The Assyrian negotiators, I hope I've approximated their tone correctly, because I see some of you are already angry at me for that tone. That's okay. You should be. They're simply trying to undermine Judah's confidence. They undermine their alliances, say, ah, forget about Egypt. Egypt can't help you. Um, Or forget about NATO, or forget about the West. You've heard the same conversation in recent months. Their faith is attempted, well, they're attempting to undermine their faith as well. Oh, forget about your God. He's on our side. And then they try to undermine their leadership by offering to buy off the king with those 2,000 horses. That's their psychological warfare, playing on the fears of the people. And you get an inclination that it's starting to work at least against Hezekiah's negotiating team, because in verse 26, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna and Joah said to Rabshakeh, could you, I'm going to paraphrase, could you stop talking in Judean, which our people understand, and speak in Aramaic, which is your main language, because we understand your main language, but we really don't want all these people involved in the conversation. But Rabshakeh said to them, has my master sent me only to your master? 
And to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? Boy, this guy is, this guy is like some of the guys I hear at the Kremlin today. Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean, saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you from my hand. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. Now, in your Bibles, that's all capital L-O-R-D. So he's using the official, formal, godly name of the Lord. He's not just saying some generic God. He's using the Hebrew holy name of the Lord. Don't let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria. Make your peace with me. And come out to me, and eat each of his vine and each of his fig tree, and drink each of the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like unto your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. But do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Separvin, Hena, Eva? Have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their land from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? He's starting to make some persuasive arguments, especially if you're sitting inside a city under siege. Lacking in resources, but he's undermining. They're doing everything they can to cast doubt on Hezekiah's leadership, to undermine the people's faith in God, to offer the people a new deal. They even make exile look good. Ah, just give in to Mother Russia. No, I mean, just give in to Assyria and your life will be so much better. Now, I must say, I'm going to do some some mischaracterizations today, and I, I will, if there are any of you of Russian descent or, or Ukrainian descent, I am not making light of the situation. I received a phone call from a, a pastor friend of mine uh, just the other day, and I was talking to him at length, and his wife is Ukrainian, and they're getting phone calls from relatives on both sides of this conflict. And I do believe there are believers on both sides of this conflict. And so, uh, sometimes we laugh to relieve the, relieve, the relieve the stress, relieve the tension. But I do know that lives are being lost and hearts are being broken. So please forgive me if I've, if I've stepped out of character and, and not reflected that in anything I say today. Well, so where do we, where do we go from there? What, what do you do when that happens to you? You know, you and I aren't facing huge armies. But we all face similar attacks on our faith from time to time. We hear the offers. At times, the enemy is very good at the psychological side of spiritual warfare, causing us to doubt our leaders and doubt our teachers who have brought us this far in our, in our life that God has used in our lives, causing us to doubt God's will for us, even if it was once very, very crystal clear until circumstances changed. You know, sometimes, even though it's clear, it's, it's, it's often to one, it's common to wonder, maybe, maybe the deal offered by the other side might not be that bad after all. So how do we answer? 
Where do we find the confidence to stand firm? What is this confidence of yours? Well, in 2 Kings chapter 18, the scripture tells us that after hearing this voice of the enemy shattering their confidence, the people fell silent. And Judah's diplomats were pretty shaken up too. They were so shaken by what they were facing that they came before the king Hezekiah with their clothes torn as though they were in mourning. And Hezekiah did the same thing. He tore his clothes and put on sackcloth. But what Hezekiah did not do in the circumstance was panic. Hezekiah turned directly to God. And he sent a message for his number one prayer warrior, a guy whose name you've heard before, the prophet Isaiah. And I like the word Isaiah sent back to him. Not exactly a don't worry, be happy, simple Pollyanna kind of approach, but better. Isaiah said to them in uh, chapter 19, verse 6, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Can you imagine how encouraging that would be for President Zelensky, say, to hear that today? But I have to be careful who I put in which character's place and when and how, because I don't know their hearts. I don't know their relationship. But it would be an amazing boost in confidence to know that the God of all creation was on one side or the other and had a very clear plan that would end this bloodshed. But emboldened by this, Hezekiah holds strong again. And things do begin to change. Sennacherib, we are told, hears a rumor about another king that's going to come to join the fight. And so suddenly Assyria has more trouble on their hands than they bargained for. But they still want Jerusalem. And they're not about to give up. So Rob Shaka stands up again, steps up the gunboat diplomacy. This time he puts it in a letter demanding Hezekiah's surrender and openly challenging Hezekiah's God. And this time Hezekiah doesn't even flinch. He takes the letter to the temple, and I, in my own mind, envision it being on a scroll because it's more dramatic and, and cinematic to see him roll out the scroll before God. But however form, whether it was on cuneiform tablets, I don't know. He laid out the letter before the Lord. He takes it to God and says, read this. <laughs> and he begins to pray. And the prayer is interesting. He starts by praising God for who he is. And petitioning God for deliverance. Second Kings 19.15 and follows. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said. O Lord. The God of Israel who art enthroned above the cherubim. Thou art the God. Thou alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. Incline thine ear O Lord and hear. Open thine eyes O Lord and see. And listen to the words of Sennacherib. Which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands, and they have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, so they have destroyed them. O now, our Lord, our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou alone, O Lord, Art God. You see where Hezekiah's confidence is? 
He's confident that he is loved and protected by the creator of the universe, the one true God. So should you and I be. And Hezekiah's confidence is rewarded in verse 20, chapter 19. Isaiah sends another message. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. Because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. Not because of your immense worthiness, not because of some special gift that you have, but because you came to me, I've heard you. This is the word that the Lord has spoken against him, that is against Sennacherib. She has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She has shaken her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted your eyes? Against the Holy One of Israel. Through your messengers, you have reproached the Lord. And you have said, with my many chariots, I came to the heights of the mountains, to the remotest parts of Lebanon, and I cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypresses, and I entered its farthest lodging place, its thickest forest. I dug wells, I drank foreign waters, and with the sole of my feet, I dried up all the rivers of Egypt. God's repeating the boasting of the Assyrians back to their face. Now here's God's word directly to them. Have you not heard? Long ago, I did it. From ancient times, I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore, their inhabitants were short of strength. They were dismayed and put to shame. They were as the vegetation of the field and as the green herb and as grass on housetops is scorched before it is grown up. In other words, God's saying, okay, you may have gotten to do this. It's because I let it take place for my own purposes. Don't mistake my plan for your greatness. But he says in verse 27, I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. You know, when God says, I know where you live, (laughs) it should be a little bit threatening. Because of your raging against me and because of your arrogance has come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. Now God has some words for Hezekiah. He says, then this shall be the sign for you. You will eat this year what grows of itself. In the second year, what springs from the same. And in the third year, sow, reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. The surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. Two things to notice about that little promise from God. One is, he's saying it's going to take a little bit of time to recover, yes. But here's the way it takes place. In three years, you'll be back in the land of plenty. But we'll, we'll get through this together. The second thing a lot of people see in that passage is a messianic prophecy that I'm not going to take the time to get to today. The remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion survivors, the zeal of the Lord will perform this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come to this city or shoot an arrow there. And he will come, not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and he shall not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Remember the prayer 
that Hezekiah led his people in earlier, he said, don't be dismayed. God's going to fight our battles for us. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. Now, there's some odd humor I saw in that passage at one point when I was a kid. I said, how could they rise in the morning if they were all dead? But really, it's suggesting when the men of Judah arose early in the morning, all of the enemy fighters were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And it came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramalech and Sharazer killed him with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat, and Ezarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. Isaiah's prophecy came true. He was scared home, where he was killed in his own temple by his own people. Now, despite the blood and guts, I love that story. I love the story of one king in a tiny city being victorious over the most powerful army on earth without firing a shot. Hezekiah was able to stand confidently in the face of overwhelming opposition when he could have folded. You know, he could have saved his own life. He could have accepted those horses. He could have ridden away and left his city and, and probably gotten some blessing and honor from, from the Assyrians. He could perhaps have snuck out the city by night leaving the people to fend for themselves. But instead, he stood confidently against the Assyrians by kneeling humbly before God. Wouldn't it be great if we could all do that? First, it'd be great if we could all recognize when we should do that. Uh, Some of us have a tendency to rise up to arms too quickly, to take the battle in our own strength too early, before going before the great commander-in-chief, and figuring out what we should be doing. But I believe we can stand against evil if we begin preparing today for our battles tomorrow. You see, Hezekiah's confidence did not just start when the Assyrians showed up. If you look back in your Bible now to the beginning of chapter 18, I think you'll see that there are at least four keys to Hezekiah's confidence. Now, in a general sense, his confidence was placed in his relationship with the Lord, the one true God. But he discovered in his life four keys that had developed him into a man who could stand in that confidence. And the first key I see in uh, First Kings eight or Second Kings eighteen three is the key of obedience. Eighteen three in your Bible should say that Hezekiah did right in the eyes of the Lord. Hezekiah did right in the eyes of the Lord. He obeyed the Lord before things got bad. He practiced obedience, which in many cases is a necessary prerequisite to a blessing and a key to confidence. We have to ask ourselves, even when we're not facing the enemy surrounding us, how are we doing on that account? Are we training ourselves to be obedient to God regardless of what we perceive the situation to be? The second key that we'll find in that first part of chapter 18 is reverence. Hezekiah so respected God that he would not allow any false worship to enter his kingdom. Yeah, Hezekiah was the guy who tore down all those high places. 
He tore down the false idols to false gods, even though that wasn't the politically correct thing to do at the time. 2 Kings 18.4 tells us he even destroyed the bronze snake that Moses had erected in the wilderness, apparently because the people had become worshipers of the bronze snake rather than worshipers of the one true God that it was to memorialize. How reverently do we treat our relationship with our God? What false gods are we willing to tolerate in our homes and in our lives and even in our churches just to stay in step with the society around us? So the first key was obedience. The second key is reverence. The third key that I find there is trust. In 2 Kings 18.5, it says of Hezekiah that he trusted God more than any king before him or after him. Now, I'm assuming that that statement excludes King Jesus. I think his trust was probably a little higher on the spectrum. But in the story we just heard, we see that that trust was much more than an intellectual belief in the truth of uh, the maxims of Scripture. It was a wholehearted reliance on God, even when things looked overwhelmingly hopeless. If we say we trust God when things are going well, but abandon him when things get tough, we really didn't trust him in the first place. We trusted experience. We trusted our own judgment. That's why we had to be reminded in Scripture, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. We need to not trust the messages of the world or the words of the enemy. We need to trust our relationship with God. The fourth key to Hezekiah's faith is perseverance. 2 Kings 18.6 says, For he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but he kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. He clung to him. You know what it's like to cling to somebody? Sometimes you want to just ah, back off. He depended entirely upon a relationship with God for his leadership strength, for his life. You get the impression that you would have found Hezekiah in the temple still clinging to God, even if in his death. If the Assyrians had torn down the walls of Jerusalem and rushed in, they would have found Hezekiah in the temple still praising God for his goodness and strength. That's the impression I get. I'd like to meet Hezekiah someday and ask him that speculative question. He went, he'd say, what does that matter now? I'm with God. <laughs> but I hope you can say that about yourselves today, that you cling to God. You know, we, we should be growing in confidence daily through obedience, through reverence, through trust, through perseverance in that relationship with God through Jesus Christ. George Herbert, who I quoted earlier, also said the ultimate ground of faith and knowledge is confidence in God. In order to stand every day in the face of our enemies, in the face of our temptations, in the face of our trials and our fears and our disappointments, we must have confidence in God, especially if these are the latter days. If these are the times when troubles and tribulations will grow to unbearable levels, and I'm not here to say they are. I don't know. I don't know if Jesus is coming tomorrow or the next day or a week or a millennium from now. I'm not that smart. <laughs> I don't know if Vladimir Putin is the Antichrist. I don't know. And it really doesn't matter if I know. 
The world is going to come at us with threats and challenges to our faith, trying to undermine our alliances with our friends, trying to buy us off with cheap thrills. But we, like Hezekiah, need to have the strength of character to turn it all aside, to take it all before God, and to cling to him no matter what the circumstance. As I said earlier, there are many believers in Ukraine, and there are many believers in Russia, too. Many on both sides of the battle lines are on their knees today, continuing to lay out their problem before God and placing their confidence in a relationship with Him. I can't tell you how it's going to turn out. I mean, if we'd carry the illustration too far, Vladimir Putin would be Sennacherib and Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine would be Hezekiah, but that would be taking it too far. This is just an illustration. I don't know either man's heart, but today I continue to pray that someone there is laying this all before God as we lay it before him as well. And just as I pray for everyone here, I pray that, that we have peace among our people. I'm going to offer a, a prayer and a final song, and then uh, after, after the final song is sung, I, I uh, want to give you a benediction to go home with. Heavenly Father, right now, I want to lift up those most pressing problems that uh, Brother Tim has already brought before you in our name and in representing us. Father, our hearts break as we see tens of thousands dying in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And we begin to shake and we begin to worry and maybe start to put on the sackcloth and ashes ourselves as, as we hear threats of nuclear conflict being the potential. That we know, Lord... You saw it all. You have a plan. Help us, Lord, to obey, to trust and revere you, and to persevere in our faith. And please bless and protect those who are suffering today because of the violence in our own home country that seems to have no end. But we trust you that there is an end and there is a joyous future. It may take some time. We'll eat what's growing of itself for a year or two. But we trust again, Lord, that we'll be one day sitting with you, eating at a banquet table in the presence of your son. We ask this in his name. Amen.